0: welcome to the age of victoria podcast i'm your host chris fernandez packham thanks for tuning in if you enjoyed today's show take a minute to leave a review on itunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at age podcast at gmail.com love to hear from you on with the show This is part three of a series on the Mount Tambora eruption and how it shaped the world into the Victorian age. Part one dealt with the eruption and the immediate impact. And part two dealt with the famines caused in Ireland and the near collapse of the British food supply, almost leading to a real revolution. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I would suggest you go back. And have a listen to them first before listening to this one okay on with the show for the united states the period after 1812 was a time of reflection and growth war with britain had been partially successful population was growing and new lands were being brought into production the political system was becoming increasingly mature and disputes between the federalists under Hamilton and John Adams and the Democratic-Republicans were at least fading to a more workable level. They were even able to get Congress to establish a bank for the United States. Population was like most countries, basically agrarian. 80% of the population involved in farming, usually supplemented by home industries like cotton weaving, bow making, smithing, and other similar activities. The main cities were on the east coast, and they held only around 7% of the population. None of them were as large as London or Manchester, and all had exceptionally primitive sewage disposal systems. There were signs of the growth of domestic manufacturing at a more professional level, and the invention of the steamship by Sam Fulton in 1807 was beginning to point towards greater industrial progress. American science and education were also beginning to become well-established and respected. Ironically, much early American climate science was about deforestation causing temperature rises, a well-understood phenomena today. Some New Englanders even worried that they would lose the brutal winter cold that they felt made them tougher than the europeans but temperatures began to decline from 1812 onwards the growing season in 1815 was not good and canada had also had some heavy crop losses this is important as it weakened the resilience of the farmers still they had a relatively mild winter but here's the thing this is important as it weakened The resilience of farmers. Still, they had a relatively mild winter, and all seemed on track for a better eighteen sixteen. When Mount Tambora erupted in eighteen fifteen, the fallout devastated climate patterns around the world. The young nation was about to be hit in eighteen sixteen with catastrophic climate change. To the north, in Canada Quebec City was hit by a massive five-day snowstorm starting on the 12th of April, 1816. And soon, Albany, New York was also buried. The disruption continued as far as Ohio. Still, it seemed like a freak event. Then, May dawned. And with it, a polar vortex-inspired winter returned. Albany was badly hit. And so was New Jersey. Even Virginia and Tennessee were struck by cold fronts, killing cotton and other crops. Ice an inch thick formed in rivers and streams in Maine. Vermont had snow. Settlers heading westwards to Pennsylvania had to dress in their winter clothes. June brought wild swings in temperature. Dartmouth College recorded a sweltering heat wave with some thunder and overnight rain but it was followed by wild swings in the jet stream this disrupted the polar vortex as it swung south it formed a U-bend around eastern America which let cold arctic air flow down from northern Canada as far as Carolina when the cold air hit the warmer New England fronts Powerful storms were produced. This caused a knock on effect, blocking and disrupting various weather systems, which trapped extreme weather conditions like snowstorms in place. On the sixth of june eighteen sixteen, Quebec was hit with brutal cold, turning the incessant rainstorms into snow. Temperatures dropped so low that birds fled from local forests to seek shelter in the warmer cities. Thousands died. Newly sheared sheep froze. In Montreal, the press advised poor farmers to plant potatoes and share any spare seed with less fortunate neighbours. Some desperate Vermont farmers tried tying the sheared fleeces back onto sheep to protect them, but it was hopeless. Just as in Britain and Ireland As I explained last episode, the fragile agrarian societies were facing a disaster on an enormous scale, but were too technologically underdeveloped and organisationally unsuited to respond effectively. Even being indoors didn't mean being warm. At an inaugural address in Concord, delegates suffered from cold hands and feet, even inside. As they left, strong gales and snow nearly overturned carriages on the bridge. And when they reached their hotel, their rooms were freezing, despite fireplaces. Boston was hit with 40 Fahrenheit temperatures and snow. The beautiful Catskill Mountains, so beloved of Thomas Cole, the finest artist who has ever lived and whose paintings of the summit of human civilization were buried in snow. The ground froze nearly everywhere, and frosts hit crops hard, even in Massachusetts and Manhattan. Near Salem, travellers were marked on icicles forming, and forests frozen with frost. Remember though, this is in June. It might sound normal for winter, and I bet subconsciously, A few listeners have forgotten, this is summer we're talking about. Some desperate farmers built fires in their fields to keep crops from freezing. Now I'm giving you a lot of verifiable information here. Plenty of newspapers, official records and diaries, all bear this out. These were mostly written by people who will almost never starve in a famine, even if they have to pay much higher prices. Thomas Jefferson, Sir Robert Peel, President Monroe, the trustees of the Dartmouth College, John Quincy Adams, were all men who bore witness to suffering, but were still some steps removed from it. What we are missing are the lived experiences of those who didn't write. We can catch glimpses of the desperation, but I'm betting these are nothing compared to the suffering Of the most isolated settlers and poorest farmers. Who didn't leave us accounts. How many suffered and died. Alone in the cold. Their farms. Long since swallowed up into the wilds again. Maybe just a ruined wall. Sticking up from the forest floor. Is a final mute testament. Can you imagine the horror? It is like something from Game of Thrones. Seeing winter coming again when it shouldn't, and knowing you don't have enough food, even in the good times, let alone now, to survive this. Seeing your children, slowly starving to death in front of you, as you try to hack some weeds, from the frozen ground, to boil into soup. Some, turned to faith, but for others, while they took the traditional human response, they began to emigrate. Humans in general, will always either seek to improve conditions if they can, or leave if they can't, and if those aren't possible, then they will try and tough it out. One newspaper heartbreakingly said, The very face of nature still appears to be shrouded in death-like gloom, and as she weeps, which well she may, for the barrenness of her fields, and for the chilling blasts that whistle through her locks from unprecipitous climb." Her tears freeze fast to her cheeks as they seemed to flow. End quote. Wells froze. Crops died. Yields were massively down from highs of up to 40 tons down to around 5 tons on some farms. Most Americans were deeply religious, perhaps more so than the British of the period. Many interpreted prosperity as a sign of God's favour and his sustaining hand, whilst misfortune, disaster and storms were signs of divine wrath. Layered on top of this were countless local superstitions that were sent out in almanacs, pamphlets and books. Pennsylvania farmers had often expanded their farms to meet European demand for grain in Napoleonic Wars often going into great debt. It was a situation almost identical to the problems faced by the Irish farmers. Religious revivalism on many of the frontier communities intensified as the weather worsened. There was a break in the weather in some areas in June, so farmers decided that spring had finally arrived and tried a planting which would involve using wooden ploughs on waterlogged fields, back-breaking work. As June turned to July, wild swings in temperature left Virginia in a drought, much to Jefferson's annoyance. President Madison was still not unduly alarmed. Perhaps, if the weather was finally turning, a decent late harvest would see them through. The newspapers in Maine continued to worry, but famine seemed like it would be avoided. Attention turned to the bitter political election to replace President Madison, one that was won by James Monroe. He was not a popular choice, with criticism of both his honesty and his intellect in comparison to his predecessor. By August, farmers were planting late crops and planning for a late harvest. They were on the cusp of a recovery Pennsylvania and New England as a whole were optimistic. Despite a few snap frosts, most people were actually praying for rain to break high temperatures, almost as if it was a scene from a film. At noon on the 20th of August, the skies darkened and a massive storm hit Amherst in New Hampshire. In the next few hours, Temperatures plunged up to 30 degrees. The snows and frosts returned with a vengeance. The storm travelled as a harbinger of more despair. The country froze from Connecticut to Maine, from Kentucky to Ohio. Pumpkins, cucumbers, Indian corn, vines and potatoes died off in droves. For New Hampshire, this was dire news indeed. The state was bankrupt with only $100 in reserve. The governor was reduced to begging banks for loans to tide them over to the next tax season. But he was rejected. Only a federal bailout to fund the militia saved the state. In desperation, the governor was reduced to using the local prison population as slave labour construction projects to repair lost roads and bridges. To give you an idea of how dire this really was for people, remember that 80% of the population of New Hampshire were subsistence farmers. These farms weren't anything like as productive as in the Connecticut River Valleys. These were rural farms in hilly country that were hard to work even in the good times. The farmers relied utterly on supplementing their crops with the income from cattle plus the family would do some piecework things like textiles to add a little extra income on the side. Farmers were now in a real bind. Their crops were dead but their cattle needed the hay and grain which had been lost. The industrial revolution hadn't really reached New Hampshire so... If you were a subsistence farmer that was basically always going to be your life like it or not and subsistence meant subsistence as food storage options were limited there weren't railways and extensive food reserves that could be shuttled around coastal regions could at least turn more heavily to fishing but other areas faced genuine famine new food sources were sought out porcupine or wild pigeon perhaps not that things were much better in the south even in south carolina frosts returned some local people noted it didn't matter at this point there was nothing left to kill off wiser observers began to note that the weather would cause emigration jefferson was carefully observing the weather and was concerned that famine was inevitable perversely though some areas remained drought hit for months even suffering forest fires and record low river levels they finally had their prayers for rain in virginia answered only for it to turn into a deluge that continued for days and caused massive flooding sweeping away fields coastal areas all received a massive battering from the storms. Other areas still hadn't seen any rain, just snow for months. With brutal inevitability, another blast of freezing weather and snow swept in on the 10th of September. Mountains in North Vermont were again buried in snow. Farmers began pulling up whatever was left in the ground, ready or not. In Quebec, the situation was Desperate almost beyond description. Almost as bad as in Ireland. Some local farmers were reduced to trying to eat wild herbs. The horror just didn't end. I could list more and more weather disasters like this throughout the United States in September 1816. Floods. Droughts. Forest fires. Frosts. Dry wells. Frozen ground. Rotten crops thunderstorms, hail and snow. Maine farmers face the awful choice of whether to eat next year's seeds to survive, possibly leaving them to starve to death over winter and spring with nothing to plant or to feed the cattle. One farmer is recorded as having killed all his cattle and then committed suicide. In religious early 19th century America, this was shocking. Merchants. Did their best to throw gasoline on the fire by eagerly exporting expensive food supplies to the desperate French and West Indies. Despite the urging of the newspapers for them to be patriotic and keep the needed food back to feed starving Americans, letters crossing the Atlantic made it clear that the whole of Europe was also in the grip of a full blown crisis. As in Britain, The doctrine of free market economics had a powerful grip on the ruling class who often refused to arrange any kind of aid or intervention. Many governors thought prayer was the only real remedy. Now though, we come to the moment where we see the major impact of this climate event on history. What I have described to you has been awful. It has hopefully driven home the impact that climate change can have and the way a single eruption can affect the world. Now, though, we're again about to see the impact on history, just as we saw in previous episodes how it triggered emigration in Ireland and nearly kicked off a revolution in England. In New England, the dam was also about to burst. Huge numbers of farmers decided enough was enough. As tension broke, the first great Migration West was triggered. The cry went up. Ohio or bust. Illinois was also sparsely populated and advertising for settlers. After the War of 1812, the US had been actively cleansing these areas of Native Americans, stealing land and selling it to white settlers. The trickle soon became a desperate flood. By October 1816, 40 to 50 wagons a day were leaving New England for Ohio through Zanesville alone. Several thousand were thought to go through Zanesville, and many met with misfortune. Emigrants on the trail passed the wreckage of wagons and saw the corpses of horses and oxen strewn along the way. Just imagine how hard that decision must have been to take, to take a young family perhaps with children, into utterly unknown and dangerous territory. The gender roles of 1816 would have put the main responsibility for the decision and the success of the venture on the man's shoulders. Women would have had a say, especially if the couple were happy and a well-matched partnership, but ultimately everything would rest on the man's skill and judgment. But the psychological pressure on everyone in the family must have been immense. A difficult journey could doom them before they arrived. The man's death or serious injury would leave the woman and any children in a dire predicament. In an era where physical strength counted immensely, especially when undertaking a hard physical journey, the loss of the man would leave the others with few options. Much employment would be closed to women either due to social prejudice or the resulting lack of experience. There were tough frontier women who were every bit the equal of any man, but they were the exception. In general, the women would be faced with giving up or attaching themselves to other families or taking employment in the nearest town, but this was becoming thin on the ground. Children would add to the heavy weight the adults had to wrestle with, One witness described a settler passing through New York from Maine who was heading to Tennessee. The witness said he was somewhat depressed by fatigue drawing behind him a handcart containing all his effects, chattels and provisions and two children of age too feeble to travel. Behind followed the elder children and wife bearing in her arms a robust infant, seven months old. End quote. They had covered 400 miles of the journey and still had 800 left to go. Think about what that really means. Put yourself in their shoes if you can. Conditions were desperate enough that a walk of 1,200 miles, with around five children from that description, seemed a good idea. Only provisions, are those that you can physically carry. Your children are utterly dependent on you. No one will really provide help if you live or die. A walk might sound okay, but it is day after day, so none of the family will be earning wages unless they stop to labour or trade. But thousands of others will be doing the same. Every day's walk requires calories, not just to move, but to provide the energy carry the food that provides the calories to walk and carry the food. Some shocked bystanders donated 10 or $20 to the struggling man with the handcart, so this family were lucky for the moment. Clothes were often highly unsuitable for the conditions by today's standards. Thin cotton shirts, perhaps with knitted waistcoats, a coat and an overcoat of wool or treed, maybe knitted mittens and a fur hat. The mountain men would be far better off. Skilled hunters and trappers, dressed in animal skins and furs, with huge bearskin or buffalo skin overcoats, and thick fur gloves and hats, meant that they could weather the terrible conditions in the Catskill Mountains. Armed with Kentucky long rifles, they were well equipped, and were highly sought after guides for richer emigrant wagon trains, tough men who would have legendary names on the early frontier, learnt their trade from the early mountain men who survived this winter. Farmers who remained in New England watched starving wolves come closer, taking cattle, and perhaps, who knew, one day, them. Some farmers ate the stems of potato plants, wild pigeons or hedgehogs, Vermont switched en masse to surviving on mackerel and the dreadful conditions triggered immense religious revivalism. Some Native American tribes also suffered. Many often sold surplus grain to white settlers in good years. Crop losses of up to 90% reduced them to having to ask churches and charities for help. It is really difficult to know how hard the natives were actually hit by this event. They had the advantage of deep local knowledge and immense wilderness skills, plus they had far lower population numbers to support. But they would have found hunting in these conditions extremely hard, especially when combined with crop losses, and they didn't have some of the technologies available to the incoming American settlers. They would have also faced immense racism and some violent skirmishes with the newcomers. Emigration from New England didn't ease the pressure as boats of desperate Irish immigrants arrived fleeing the human catastrophe unfolding in Ireland that I talked about last episode. Many starved to death in the streets. Not all died though. Thomas Broken Hand Fitzpatrick arrived in 1816 from Ireland and he would go on to found the famous Rocky Mountain Fur Company, and run with legends like Jim Bridger, Jed Smith, and even Kit Carson himself. Without the famine, who knows if the great trapping and raiding into Missouri and the other amazing events with the Comanches and the Crows in Utah, Wyoming, and so many other places would have unfolded as they did. The outgoing President Madison gave a curiously upbeat final annual speech to Congress on the state of the nation. He lauded the government finances, running a fiscal surplus, spoke approvingly of the tranquil life on the frontier, encouraged the founding of a national university and the building of more roads, plus paying down the national debt. He did open the speech with some remarks about the weather, expressing his disappointment, but, confident that the u s a as a whole had a varied climate and plenty of food, so things would be fine. He mentioned that the lack of food might encourage quote, an economy of consumption more than usual, end quote, but that quote, they could give thanks to Providence for the remarkable health which has distinguished the present year end quote. in effect. The US government had adopted basically the same attitude as the British government under Lord Liverpool, but had actually taken fewer practical steps than the British had in Britain, or as Sir Robert Peel had, as Governor of Ireland, despite the far worse situation in many areas. There had been no summer, though. Soon October passed, and winter came, with it came more snow and storms. To some, it felt like the end of days had arrived. Conditions worsened. And by May 1817, the wave of emigration reached immense levels. 260 wagons travelled west through the Janice Valley in just nine days. This means that the eruption of Mount Tambora had triggered a wave of mass migration Across Europe, across Ireland, and now across America, that would reshape the American colonies and push them in the journey from the East Coast to the West. This was a hugely diverse group of migrants families, farmers, religious communities, displaced Southerners, and ambitious adventurers, and even a few new messiahs. Maine alone lost between 10,000 15,000 people to the emigrants' trains heading west, whilst in Vermont, some towns lost nearly their entire young population to emigration. The Smith family from Vermont didn't go all the way west. Instead, they settled in the Genesee Valley near Palmyra, where a few years later, In 1820, Joseph Smith Jr. would, according to him, meet God and Jesus, who warned him of church corruption, and who would later send the angel Moroni to show him the location of the real Gospels, written on a golden plate. These, the angel said, were buried in nearby hills. Smith recovered them and wrote them down as the Book of Mormon. He went on to found the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints in 1830, often better known as the Mormons. Without the Mount Tambora eruption and climate change, it is unlikely his family would have settled in that valley when they did. So the eruption is in part responsible for creating a new religion. populations in Ohio, Illinois and Indiana, skyrocketed. They went from struggling to attract people to seeing massive population growth. But although the climate was wonderful for agriculture, it was a harsh frontier life. There were no real industries to support the settlers. Families might be so isolated they wouldn't see another human for months. Stone was also scarce so building materials were hard to find. The frontier life was also extremely isolated and hard. Self-reliance would become an increasingly needed talent, which would feed into the later mindset of the expansion into what is called the Old West. Whilst the United States reshaped itself, and Britain and Ireland drowned in excessive rainfall, Europe was suffering terribly. Belgium was underwater, but hardest hit of all was Central Europe. Here, in the darkness and the rain and the starvation, would come some of the finest artistic expression. Here, the darkness and the rain and the starvation would find fullest artistic expression with the birth of the truly Gothic. At the heart of this complex journey into the storm-wrecked Switzerland was George Noel Gordon, better known to history as Lord Byron. In 1816, a group of people were staying in a chateau on the southern edge of Lake Geneva. They had had a terrible journey to get there and were now basically stuck there because of the weather. If you had to pick a group of people to be stranded together, You really wouldn't want to pick this particular mix. At its heart was the 28-year-old Lord Byron, chased out of England, dogged by the incest scandal, debt, a failed marriage, affairs, drug addiction, and a reputation as one of the finest poets to ever hold a pen. This included an affair with Lady Caroline Lamb, who was married to Lord Lamb, better known to Victorian fans as Lord Melbourne or Dear Lord M, to Queen Victoria. Lord Byron did leave a legitimate daughter behind in England, the great Victorian Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer. Byron was accompanied by Percy Shelley, whose poetry and wit he greatly admired, and Percy's lover, Mary Godwin a.k.a. Mary Shelley there was also the wannabe poet Dr. Polidori who was professionally jealous of Lord Byron's attachment to Shelley's work over his own thrown into the mix was Claire Claremont half-sister of Mary Godwin who was pregnant with Lord Byron's child Byron and Percy made various trips and visited the local social scene The weather alternated between driving rain, flooding, and damp, depressing fogs. Then came the famous night, where they challenged each other to write a ghost story. Byron had moments of inspiration, and wrote some of his best poetry, but didn't seem to take the challenge too seriously. Mary, though, was working hard on the definitive Gothic novel based off her experiences with Galvanism. Dr. Polidori was edged out of the company and went on to write a story called The Vampire, which inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula. So whatever his companions thought of him, he did have some talent. It is actually worth a read. It's a very short story. It's free on Project Gutenberg. And it's pretty good in some places, although the ending is frankly dire. Now, Claire Claremont was not a welcome presence. She begged Byron to see her, but he wouldn't do so on his own. She was instead forced to settle for copying drafts of his latest works ready for his publisher. And in the background, the situation across Europe deteriorated. Switzerland had to ban the export of food and even forbade baking white bread to save flour. Daylight was sometimes only a few hours a day. Crops rotted, potatoes were ruined in Germany. And Unlike in Britain, though, where the free market was expected to solve problems by the invisible hand, in Prussia and Austria, massive relief efforts were underway. As a side note, relief efforts were also underway for the Prince Regent in Britain, who is overeating and overindulgent was causing his bowels to be inflamed. Eventually, the Shelleys and Claire Claremont would return to England in autumn. Whilst Byron drifted to Italy, had affairs with an Italian countess, wrote Don Juan, and renewed his friendship with Dr. Polidori. Meanwhile, Switzerland teetered on the brink of disintegration. It was the worst-hit country in Europe. Thousands of beggars roamed the country. The individual cantons began to barricade themselves from their neighbours and prevent the sharing of food. Many of the women and children begging were described as looking like walking corpses. Famine was affecting up to 20% of the population in some areas. Desperate Swiss authorities encouraged people to leave the country, just as Peel had done in Ireland in 1816. Civilisation itself seemed to be on the brink of collapse. Some of the desperate populations of Bavaria were reduced to boiling weeds for food, and as merchants in Lenchingen rationed relief supplies and loaned money from the poor relief funds so they could buy cheap property, it seemed like the social order was irretrievably breaking down. twenty six thousand thousand people died of famine in eastern Hungary alone. Germans often fled to Russia or the United States. Yet as decay and destruction seemed to gather around them, it was a grand time art and literature. The artist Turner drew great inspiration from the stormy skies and strange sunsets. Jane Austen continued to write as her health declined and she would die in July 1817. Schubert produced dark masterpieces like the Taconic in Thiel. Byron continued his poetry. The Russian mystic and writer Baroness de Kruidener predicted the end of days and encouraged the people of Switzerland to rise up and take from the rich to survive. Percy Shelley's estranged wife, Harriet, committed suicide. Within three weeks, Percy and Mary married. Claire gave birth to Byron's child, but Byron refused to accept any responsibility. He would drift around Italy, writing the fourth canto of his masterpiece, *Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Eventually taking custody of his child, only to have her shut up in a convent where she would later die. Claire Claremont would never forgive him for this. He was eventually swept up in the fight for Greek independence. He died of fever, aged only 36. Mary Shelley was still inspired by the weather, the bleakness, and the death, and finished the ultimate Gothic masterpiece, Frankenstein. She would continue to write, even after Percy drowned in a storm at sea in 1822. Fortunately, before he died, Percy was able to give us the epic poem Ozymandus. Romanticism was starting to become a serious cultural theme through the Victorian era, especially in Britain and Germany. Whilst Romanticism started in the 18th century, much of its finest flowering was born as a result of the weather in 1816. The years of 1816 and 1817 had rocked the world. I could go country by country and list more and more tragedies, famines and deaths. In a way, it was like the Black Death. A trigger for change through horror. Like the Black Death. A trigger for change through horror. The vibrant art and literature reflected this. But it wasn't triumphant or religious. Instead, the Gothic... Romantic and Byronic do not express heroes or heroines succeeding against the odds. They don't require nobility, common sense or even morality from the characters. Romanticism is about the relationship with nature and the triumph of passion over reason the erratic over the sane and the feeling over the intellect. It is a rejection of mere pastoralism or Arcadianism, a happy ending is definitely not required. Dr Frankenstein is not in any way a moral or sympathetic character. He is driven to rebel against the natural order, in a frantic hubris and obsession. Much of the backdrop of the novel is against the dire weather in Switzerland, and you can see why, given where and when it was inspired. It includes heavily the motifs of fire and Prometheus. Dr. Frankenstein is a warning against obsession and attempting to challenge the natural order of things. Romanticism might be about connection with nature, but it had a strong strain of doom and catastrophe running through it, alongside its inspirational elements. It was, in my view, a reflection of the author's subconscious feelings of helplessness and doom in the face of the climate. In a way, it became part of the DNA of Victorian culture, and a counterweight to the belief progress and modernity, or increasingly linked to Romantic nationalism and ethnic nationalism. Romanticism would therefore be a huge part of the Victorian world, often blended with the Gothic, as Mary Shelley had done in Frankenstein. Mount Tambora had shaken the world in its art, its literature, its society, its geography and its science. The Victorian age couldn't have unfolded how it did without this great event. Join me next time as we turn back to England, where, if Waterloo was its greatest triumph, a new event was about to be its great nadir. It is time to witness the massacre of Peterloo OK, thanks for listening today I'm now going to get busy on the next show don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.